Well, thanks so much for to Eric and Samuel, Jin, and everyone that's helped to uh, make this possible this morning. Our whole sound team and tech team coming back, and Ross for setting up the screens for us. Uh, so many people pitched in over the last little while just to get everything together and make it happen. Well, today we're starting a new series, and I invite you, if you have Bibles, or if you have Bibles at home, you can turn to Acts chapter 17. If not, I think the words are going to be up on the screen. And we're going to read a fascinating account of Paul spending some time in Athens. And just think of Athens as being one of the most influential, one of the most learned uh, cities in the world at the time. And uh, Paul is hanging out there. He's waiting for his crew. He's waiting for the rest of the team to catch up with him. But he's not idle. He's not just sitting around enjoying the sun. He's actually active and he wanders around the city and listen to his story. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Don't you just love it when preachers are called babblers? Hopefully not too often here. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. It's another name for Mars Hill. You might be familiar with that. Where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians, I find this hilarious, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas, just like Facebook. That's kind of the concept here. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship is something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such, such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, 
a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Oh, may God bless the reading of his word. Great story, isn't it? Uh, if you're ever bored one day, just pick up Acts of the Apostles and read through it. Lots more fascinating stories there. Well, today we start a new series. And it's a summer series based on the framework of the Apostles' Creed. So just some light theological conversation to pass our summertime away as we go through this. Now, the Apostles' Creed might be familiar to some of you. Some of you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed a little bit. If you've come from a Catholic background or from an Anglican background, uh, you're probably more familiar than if you're grown up Baptist or didn't have a church affiliation at all. Um, the Baptists, they don't like uh, creeds too much, so we stay away from them. We believe the Bible is all we need, and so we're kind of nonconformist that way. But I think it's helpful for us to look at these creeds because they are a summary of theology for us. They give us a framework to think through what we believe together. In fact, in the Bible, there are some basic creeds that we find in the New Testament. The most simple creed is this, Jesus is Lord. That's the most basic creed. And it was simple because a lot of the early converts to the way of Jesus came from a Jewish background. So they already had the foundation of the law and prophets. They had a lot of history. They had a lot of knowledge about who God was, about creation story, about redemption all through the law and the prophets. They, they had that foundation. The one missing piece was this, who is the Messiah? And so the Jewish converts to follow Jesus, they simply had a simple confession, a simple creed. They'd say, Jesus is Lord. And on the strength of that, they'd be baptized and become followers of Jesus. But as the good news about Jesus began to spread uh, beyond Jerusalem, beyond Samaria, and beyond the, the Jewish communities that were in the world around them, uh, they encountered Gentile believers. That's non-Jewish believers. They didn't have the same background. They didn't have the law and the prophets. They didn't have the same foundational stories. Uh, there was a bit of a void there. And so the early church began to form these creed statements, these summaries of theology that they could use to express the teaching of the apostles, to give people a foundation. So these creeds were used uh, for evangelism, partly, also to protect the church against false teaching, because a lot of the creeds were formed to protect them against the Gnostics and those kind of uh, false teachers, but also just to prepare people for baptism. And so that's how the creeds were used, and I think they're useful for us today. Part of my personal reason for picking up the creed is that I didn't grow up with it. Uh, my mom was Catholic. My dad was Pres Scottish Presbyterian. That created some tensions at home from time to time, especially when it came to supporting the football team in Glasgow. So whether it was Rangers or Celtic, that uh, created some tensions. Both of them knew the creed, but they didn't have a, a faith, a living faith in Christ. It wasn't until they came to Canada that they encountered Jesus and got a living faith in Christ. So I grew up in a very early age. I had a living faith in Christ, but I didn't know the creed. And it was kind of a missing part for me. And when I began to dig into the, the Apostles' Creed, I began to see the connection that we have to a much wider worldwide church that believes the same thing that we do. And so part of my hope in presenting this creed is that we will see our points of unity, see our points of connection, so that we can move forward together and express the teaching of the Apostles. 
So we can see how this uh, whole strategy developed as we read in Acts chapter 17. If you go to the beginning of Acts 17, even the passage that we read, Paul's tradition, whenever he went to a town, was to go to the synagogue first. He still attended the synagogue on the Sabbath. And there, he would reason with those who knew the scriptures. You pick that out a little bit. We read it in the passage. You find it at the beginning of the chapter. But then when he goes to the marketplace, he realizes there's a whole group of people there that don't know the scriptures. And so where does he start? He starts with what they know. Did you catch that? What a fascinating way to understand evangelism in the culture in which we live. I think so often we want to go out as the church and we want to start with what we know. But Paul doesn't do that. He starts with what they know. And he knows their poets. He knows their histories. He knows their city. He spends time in it. And he's not condemning it so much, maybe a little bit here, but he's using it as a bridge in order to tell them about Jesus. But he has to know it first. And we find that very much uh, in here. And so he has a starting point of this unknown God. And I dug into the story about the unknown God just a little bit. Because apparently in Athens, uh, there's a number of idols or statues that were set up to the unknown God at various places throughout the city. And here's the backstory. Apparently, 600 years before Paul, uh, there was a plague in Athens, like some kind of pestilence. Maybe it was COVID 619 BC or something like that. I don't know what it was. But there's some kind of pestilence. They couldn't get rid of it. They didn't know what to do. But they knew that there was this poet on Crete, on the island. And his name was Epimenides. And Epimenides was something of a legend as a wise man, of someone tuned into spirituality at the time. So they called Epimenides over and said, what can we do to get rid of the pestilence? And so he said, let's gather around the Areopagus, around Mars Hill, where this story takes place, and we are going to release a flock of sheep, black sheep and white sheep, into the city. And wherever the sheep lies down, when it lies down next to a statue or a temple to a god, then sacrifice it to that god. But if it lies down somewhere random and there's no temple nearby, just sacrifice it to the unknown god. <laughs> I mean, and so the moral of the story is, if you're a sheep, keep moving. Just keep... <laughs> Keep walking. Don't lie down anywhere because you're done. And maybe we could have tried this for COVID. I don't know. Because it seemed to work. Apparently, according to legend, this is how it happened. And so there's all these statues to these unknown gods. And you can see the trust of the people in Athens were in this kind of uh, mythology, this idea of we're just going to sacrifice to everyone and hope someone hears. You ever see that in our culture today? I'm just throwing out this prayer to whoever's going to listen. And that was kind of the attitude that we find in Athens. So that's where the unknown God idea comes from. And that's where Paul starts. He says, this God, which you haven't known to this point, let me tell you about him. This is the God who has created the world. That's where Paul starts with the people in Athens. And that's actually where the Apostles' Creed starts as a way of reaching out and giving a framework of belief for people that maybe haven't known God before. The beginning of the Apostles' Creed says this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Some of you know it, right? And that's where it starts. So let's just look at that opening statement of the Apostles' Creed and uh, share some thoughts about it as we wander through together. This is one statement, but really there's three sections. So let's take them one at a time. Now, it was very handy for me as a Baptist preacher to have three sections 
in this statement. First of all, I believe in God. Just a fundamental, simple statement. It's radical today. It's getting less and less today that people will declare that statement. But that's the first statement in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Anyone who wants to come to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Anyone who wants to come to God. I mean, it sounds pretty fundamental, pretty basic. If you're going to, to come to God, you first have to believe that he exists. The first step to faith is to affirm the, the existence of God. But we're actually finding that less and less in our culture in Canada today, aren't we? Um, I looked up some stats, and in 1985, some of you remember that date, maybe not everyone. 1985, if you were to ask the average Canadian, do you believe in God, how many do you think would say yes? Any guesses? 80? Yeah, close? Okay, here's the actual stat. I won't keep you guessing. 61% would say definitely, absolutely yes. And another 23% would say, yeah, I think so. So together, we're looking, if I do my math right, 84% of Canadians in 1985 would say, yes, I believe that God exists. Well, a poll was done just last year, 2020. And I won't ask you to guess, but just look at the stats here. Today, if you were to ask the average Canadian, 32% would say, yes, definitely. An additional 27% would say, I think so. Equaling 59% that would say, yes, I believe in God. Now, at first, I think as the church, we get a little shocked at those stats. And maybe even a little fearful. And maybe even beginning to say, well, no wonder our culture is going to hell in a handbasket. We've stopped believing in God. But I want to offer maybe something a little different this morning. I want to say, I think that's a good thing. I think it's good that people are starting to be really honest <laughs> about whether or not they actually believe in God. Because there's a danger in having a massive population that gives lip service to God. I think it's one of the reasons why I don't support uh, reintroducing the Lord's Prayer and forcing people in public schools to say it. Because I think by doing that, we create a lot of hypocrites. We create a whole lot of kids that really don't mean what they're saying. We can create a whole generation of people that grew up just giving lip service to God. And that's not what we're about. That's not what we're looking for. I think in the past in Canada, people might say, well, I'm a Christian because I'm in a Christian country. Or I believe in God because that's the thing that we do. We're Canadian. We believe in God. And I think it's dangerous. I think it's dangerous to assume salvation based on proximity to those who are actually saved. That's dangerous. But it's also dangerous when a large population of people are nominally Christian. That is, Christian in name only. Because in name only believers tend to do things in the name of Jesus that are unholy. And I think that's happened within Canada. Just witness the residential school system. The things that have been done in the name of Jesus by those who are giving lip service to God are unholy. And I think it gets us in trouble. So we have to be careful. So I'm actually kind of glad to see that the numbers of people that just glibly say, oh, I believe in God, is actually shrinking. Because I think it shows a more accurate picture of who does tr truly believe in God. So we need then to go a little bit beyond just 
believing in God's existence. And I think the creed takes us there. Certainly the Bible does. James chapter 2 reminds us of this. James says, you believe that there's one God? Good for you. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. So at least they're having an appropriate reaction to their belief in God. Um, so it's not enough just to believe in God's existence. I think that's my point. And the creed and the wording in the original, it drives at that too. Because the word here for believe isn't simply an intellectual assent to the existence of God. It's actually a word that would mean confidence. I have confidence in God. I have placed my trust in God. I believe into God. That's the sense that we get not just from the creed, but more importantly from Scripture. That the sense of confidence, that we're resting in God. See, the Athenians that Paul was talking to, they had no problem believing in lots of gods. But they didn't trust any one of them. Have you ever read some of the Greek mythology and the Greek uh, conversations about God? You cannot trust any of the Greek gods. I mean, they will turn on you. They are fickle. And so you've got a whole city of people that obviously believe that some kind of God exists, and maybe many gods, but they don't have confidence in any one of them. And so here is Paul saying, I want to tell you about God in such a way that you can know and have confidence that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he is for you and not against you. That's where Paul is coming from. So as we start with this opening statement, can we stand and say, I believe in God? In other words, I have confidence in God. Okay, the second part of that opening statement, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I already mentioned that Paul was very familiar with the Greek poets, which is an interesting thing for us to encourage us to know the writings of our culture, to know what's happening in the culture in which we're trying to reach. Paul was very familiar with the poets and even quotes them um, in the passage that we read together. And uh, as, as we look at this, he tells the people of Athens that even your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, Paul has a, a strategy for doing this and for laying this out. But Paul is saying in a very general sense, God is the father of us all. The father in the sense of he is the point of origin. He is our common denominator. We can trace our lineage back to God himself. That's where it all started. That's Paul's argument here. It's the same argument that we find, pardon me, in Malachi chapter 2. And it says this, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Don't we all have the same common denominator, the same point of origin? And I think the implication that Paul draws is this. God is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and we move and we have our being. And so the Bible contends that the general fatherhood, and I'm using that very specifically, the general fatherhood of God makes us all of equal value, no matter who we are or where we come from. It also gives us equal access to God. This is really important, and I think Sometimes we don't realize how important this is. Uh, this week, starting tomorrow, some of our youth and Eric and other volunteers are heading downtown with a mustard seed. And I just want to draw a bit of a comparison in that. Uh, I think sometimes when we come to church and we're regular attendees at church and we give regular to the offering, 
I wonder if sometimes we have a sense that we have greater access to God because of our deeds. And we wonder about the people on the street that don't come to church, that don't care, that they have less access to God. Maybe we don't say it in those words, but maybe we live it like that. And yet Paul is saying that, no, that's not true. We all trace our lineage back to God. We all have equal access because God is just a prayer away for each and every one of us. So we don't want to attend church to get God's attention, to get on his good side, to make him look favorable upon us. He already loves us. He already loves everyone. We're all just a prayer away from access to God. It's, it's that close. In him we live and we move and we have our being. This is the radical nature of the gospel. The gospel was breaking down all kinds of barriers. It was breaking down racial barriers and social barriers and gender barriers. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, all one in Christ. That was the drive of the gospel to say that we are all on equal footing when it comes to God. Because we're made in his image, because we are all sinners together, and because Christ died for us. We are all together in this. And so the implication, I think, from the creed and from Scripture is that we should treat everyone else as a child of God in this general sense. We are all equally loved by God as those created in his image. But again, Jesus takes this one step further. So like in the first point, we believe in the existence of God, but we're asked to place our confidence in him. In the second point, there's this general fatherhood of God that unites all of humanity together. But then Jesus takes it a step further. He introduces us to God as Abba, Father. This very intimate kind of term. Sometimes people translate it as daddy. I'm not, I'm not sure it's that familiar, but the idea is that it's a, an intimate term of trust and love. And Jesus says we can know God, the creator, as Abba, as intimately as a child trusts his or her father. So God not only created us, but he also redeemed us. He bought us back. And so we can enter into the relationship of the fatherhood of God in that way as well. So Paul reasons with the Athenians, and he says, since we are God's offspring, then we have an idea of what God is like. So God can't be made of metal and bricks and mortar. God can't live in those kind of uh, spheres and spaces. We must know that God is a living being and can be known, and we can relate to him. And so that's very exciting. God so loved the world, and the question is, do we then love as he did? Do we love all those who are made in his image? And do we know God in this sense, this intimate sense of Abba, Father? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. This uh, line in the Apostles' Creed is actually an echo of Acts 17. We read it together. Paul introduces the God who made the world and everything in it and is the Lord of heaven and earth. That's why the Apostles' Creed is just a summary of the teaching of the apostles. And that's what we find here. But Acts 17, in Paul's word, they're just an echo of Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Psalm 24, though, is just an echo of something else, of Genesis 1, Right? And so we see this strand going all the way through Scripture into the New Testament. 
and right up into our summary of teaching in the Apostles' Creed. God is the owner of the earth. He is the creator. And I think the, the really important thing to grasp from the creation story is this. The first purpose of the creation story is to establish ownership. The second purpose of the creation story is to set up and designate stewardship. Those are two very important things that sometimes we confuse as humans because sometimes we forget that we are stewards and we think we're owners and we're not. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We are called to be stewards, not owners of the earth. And as stewards, we have an, an obligation to take care of the earth on behalf of someone else because it's not ours. Um, when I was growing up, my dad often uh, sort of drilled into me in a, in a good way, uh, the idea that if we borrow something from someone else, we should take care of it. In fact, if we can return it in better shape, then we should do that. He'd often say, if you're borrowing someone's car, make sure you return it clean and with a tank full of gas. I think actually he was talking about his car. When I borrowed it, <laughs> I should return it clean and with a tank full of gas. But there's that idea that he really instilled in me. The idea that if we are borrowing something from someone, then we're responsible for it, even maybe more than if it was our own, so that we return it in that sense. How are we doing with the earth, the earth that is the Lord's and everything in it? Have we mixed up our role? Do we think that we're somehow become owners of the earth and can do with it as we please? And so this is a challenge for us that comes from the creed and certainly and more importantly from scripture as well. The earth is ours to enjoy, but not ours to exploit. And so we have to be careful in what we do with the earth because we are returning it to its maker in that sense. So the Christian motivation for creation care, the stewardship of the earth, it's not guilt. It's not even fear of annihilation. The Christian motivation for creation care is gratitude. It's gratitude grateful for the gift that we've been given. It's an act of worship to tend for, to tend and to care for the earth. And so I hope you see that even as you go into your gardens or as we purchase things or as we take care of our households or even our own bodies, this act of worship as we go about our daily tasks is part of what it means to honor the, cre the creator of heaven and earth. So we're reminded of God's ownership and our stewardship in this phrase, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Well, after Paul talks to the Athenians and the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, there were three different responses. Did you catch that? The first response, some people just mocked him. Said these ideas are strange and maybe a little stupid. I mean, you're just babbling on here forever and we don't understand what you're talking, especially when it comes to the resurrection because we know that people don't rise from the dead. And so they dismissed him. They were amused. It entertained them for an afternoon, but in the end, it's just babbling. I think we find that response and that honest response within the culture around us when we begin to talk about our faith. So we can expect that. Some people, however were interested, but they decided to postpone their decision about Jesus. They decided to put it off. You know, maybe I'll wait to a more convenient time. Maybe when I get my affairs in order. Maybe when I get a little bit older. Maybe when I have more knowledge. 
then I'll make a decision. I think that's probably the most dangerous response because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. But then there were some who believed. We're told about Dionysius of the Areopagus. This was a major thing for him because he is in the elite of the elite in Athens. He's among the, the thinkers and the planners and, and those who kind of guide and direct the thoughts of the city. And he heard Paul and he believed along with a woman named Damaris, who we don't know too much about. So some believed and others beyond that. And so the power of the gospel in Paul's presentation still took effect. And I want to encourage us, even as we look at Canada and the diminishing numbers of people who say they believe in God, there's still opportunity to offer witness to the resurrection of Jesus and see people come to faith, come to believe. I know some of us are praying that for our family members. They're praying it for our neighbors. And just hold on to that hope. Paul applied himself, he spoke of the gospel, and people believed. So, but the question is this morning, do we believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? And if we do believe, what difference does that make in our day-to-day -day lives? We're going to say the Apostles' Creed together. I think we'll have it on screen. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And again, if you're not sure about it, that's fine. Don't say it. It's, uh, I don't want to uh, force people into saying things that you don't believe. But maybe just reflect on it. And if you do believe it, let's say this together as we read it on the screen. Ready? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the faith that has been passed down from generation to generation. The faith that reflects the teaching of the apostles, but the faith that really is found and located within your son, Jesus. Thank you that we can trust him, that we can put our confidence in him, and that we can know him in amazing and true and intimate ways. Father, help us to share this faith with others through our words, but also our actions. May they line up. May what we believe matter in the way that we act in the world. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.